I don't know. <laughs> Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. It is midnight in Cozy Corner and around the world. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and put your feet up and get ready to howl at the moon. It is time for the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. Are y'all ready? I'm ready. I am definitely ready. What have we got tonight? Tonight we have David Fincher's 1995 mystery thriller 7 starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. Can you dig it? Most definitely. I am the Coyote, and you are listening to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. Welcome, misfits, miscreants, spooks, specters, astral beings from Dimension X, alien envoys from galaxies near and far, and all of you boogers from around the world. I am Dan, and you are listening to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. With me, as always, is my very lovely, my very talented, my very Seven Deadly Sin co-host, Faith. Say hi, Faith. Hello. Hi. You You seem a little down, Faith. A little bit. Why are you down, Faith? I'm almost out of coffee. Uh, you know, Faith, we can always make more coffee. <laughs> I know. There it is. <laughs> there it is. So usually here on the show, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on here at the beginning. But you know what? It's been a long week for both Faith and myself, and I'm feeling a little saucy. What about you, Faith? A little bit. Mm-hmm. You feeling saucy? Yeah. You want to just get right into it? Sure. I set you up for that. <laughs> Do you want to just get right into it? That's what she said. Thank you, Faith. I was too excited to get the show started. Jeez. There, well, you were. Ex- <laughs> you weren't excited when the show started. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I am. Okay, it's because I said we could make more coffee. Mm-hmm. So, Faith, we have a movie tonight that is not exactly a horror film, but it does contain elements of horror. Would you like to tell them what movie we're talking about tonight? We're talking, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's got some weird letters it's and got, numbers. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> no, we're talking about uh, the movie Seven. Is right, from 1995. This movie fits into the mystery thriller genre, and many call it a neo-noir film. And film noir is, of course, a very fancy French term for crime movies of the 1940s and 50s. Faith, why is it that French terms always sound so fancy? I don't know, but I was just about to say I love that, that, that term. I love the words. The noir. film film noir? Yes. Yes. Our, so our our good friends at Wikipedia, that is not a French word. They have done us a favor <laughs> and said it very eloquently and concisely. Here it is. The English translation is dark movie, indicating something sinister and shadowy, but also expressing a cinema cinematographic style. That's a big word. That might be French. <laughs> 
The film noir genre includes stylish Hollywood crime dramas, often with a twisted, dark wit. Neo-noir has a similar style, but with updated themes, content, style, visual elements, and media. Neo-noir film directors refer, refer to classic noir in the use of tilted camera angles, interplay of light and shadows, unbalanced framing, blurring of the lines between good and bad and right and wrong, and thematic motifs including revenge, paranoia, and alienation. All of the sweet and sugary things in life, Faith. Yep, exactly. Yeah, feel-good movies. <laughs> so classic examples of film noir include 1941's The Maltese Falcon starring Humphrey Bogart, 1944's Double Indemnity starring Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray, and Edward G. Robinson. That is a wonderful movie. 1947's Out of the Past starring Robert Mitchell, and 1949's The Third Man starring Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. And incidentally, the theme from the film The Third Man makes a cameo appearance in this movie about halfway through. A list of neo-noir titles would include 1974's Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, the Coen Brothers' 1984 directorial debut Blood Simple, starring Francis McDormand, and the late great Curtis Hansen's excellent 1997 film L.A. Confidential, starring Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger. I think Seven definitely qualifies as a neo-noir picture, but there are some seriously horrifying and disturbing elements and imagery at play here that I think qualify it as a horror picture as well. And we're going to get to that when we talk about the theme of the film. So we have a lot of moving parts here, Faith. We have police procedural, mystery, psychological thriller, and we also have horror movie, as we said. Faith, this was a first time watch for you. What did you expect this movie to be going in and what did you find once you were in the middle of it? I think I expected it to be more of just the um, kind of run-of-the-mill cop movie. You know, kind of, here's a murder, you know, who done it? <laughs> just kind of sort of, right. you know, let's solve this mystery and that's it, you know? Let's solve it and go get some donuts. Right. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but yeah, watching it, I feel like there's more to it with um, just who these characters are. I feel like that's, yes. you know, that's yes. where, where I was in the middle of it. It's way more than what I thought it would be. Yes. So you were just expecting a pretty standard, maybe maybe above average crime thriller. Yeah, I mean, I had read great things about it, but, you know, I was just kind of expecting it to be, you know, here are these murderers or murder or whatever, and uh, they, they go solve it. Were you expecting something along the lines of a Saw movie, perhaps? Uh, not necessarily, but, you know, I wasn't expecting... Maybe I was expecting a little bit more gore. Yeah. I don't know. It's, but it's, uh, it's an influence on the Saw series. I know it yeah. is, but I wasn't expecting Saw all the way. There's a there's a big know. difference between the movies that this influenced and this movie. And we're going to talk about mm-hmm. that a little as we get into it. But uh, this movie was directed by David Fincher. This was his second film after an absolutely soul-sucking experience <laughs> making 1992's Alien 3 for 20th Century Fox. It's a little too much to get into here, but he has publicly disowned that film and has said that no one hates it more than he does. Fincher was born August 28, 1962 in Denver, Colorado. From 1981 to 1983, he worked for George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. He has credits on 1983's Return of the Jedi and 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He left ILM to direct commercials and music videos. He founded Propaganda Films with fellow directors Greg Gold, Nigel Dick, and Dominic Senna, who directed the 2000 Nicolas Cage film Gone in 60 Seconds, which we talked about on our most recent Cage Mash Monday episode. And Faith, 
you know where those are available, right? I sure do. Anywhere where podcasts can be found. Shameless, shameless plug. Don't feel any shame. There you go. (laughs) David Fincher felt some shame about Alien 3. (laughs) So after the awful experience working on Alien 3, Fincher was not even reading scripts. He has said of that time that he thought he would rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. That is a direct quote. (laughs) It was it really was that bad. Uh, two things led to him accepting the movie and going on to the career that he has had. Sigourney Weaver and Arnold Copelson. Copelson, the producer of Seven, remembered how Sigourney Weaver had defended Fincher in the media against the executives running the Alien 3 movie. He also had a very low opinion of the executives at that time and wanted Fincher to do the film. Fincher agreed to do the movie because he was drawn to the script, which he found to be a, quote, connect the dots movie that delivers about inhumanity. It's psychologically violent. It implies so much, not about why you did it, but how you did it. Mm -hmm. He found it more a meditation on evil rather than a police procedural. After the success of Seven, Fincher would go on to direct 1997's The Game, starring Michael Douglas, 1999's Fight Club, starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton, 2002's Panic Room starring Jodie Foster, 2007's Zodiac starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, and Robert Downey Jr. That's before they teamed up for a little movie called The Avengers. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button from 2008. That was his third film with Brad Pitt. 2010's The Social Network, 2011's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and 2014's Gone Girl starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Faith, I just listed a lot of really great movies. What do you think of David Fincher's journey from Alien 3 to 7 and the great film career he's had since then? And also, let me ask this, do you have a favorite of those other films I just mentioned? Well, uh, yeah, that is a nice list of movies. Um, Considering (laughs) he didn't want to even read scripts. And would have rather colon cancer. <laughs> it, it was bad. Let me just give a quick breakdown of what that was like. They were second guessing him at every turn. Uh, they had put money into the production before he even showed up. The movie was like $30 million in the hole when he showed up. Oh my gosh. They wouldn't let him shoot scenes that he needed. They were constantly wanting to tinker with the script. They wouldn't let him edit anything. Uh, it was awful. I think he got fired three times and rehired. And then finally, when they said you can't edit the movie, he walked away and it, it was terrible. And the fact that the movie turned out as well in parts as it did is a testament to how good this guy really is. And it's a shame that he wasn't able to make the movie that he wanted because that movie had so much potential. But why'd they do that? I mean, because they were idiots. I mean, really, Arnold Copelson knew they were idiots. And uh, terrible. I want to say they changed management like right after that. But Sigourney Weaver did, to her credit, defended him and, and you know, thank her for, for the career that, you know, that yeah. uh, her support, I think, has led to this career that he's had, that he's able to get this job. So, well, I mean, yeah, considering all of that, I mean, that's some terrible stuff. And considering awful. that to come back and make all of these movies. That I've seen most of them and enjoy. That's, I mean, that's. It's something. It's, it yeah. is something. I mean. And it's amazing how they run those productions sometimes when you hear these stories about all this money being pumped into something and not having a script and changing things. And it, it's amazing. But yeah, he really was miserable. He was so miserable that when they did a release of, uh, at that time, all four alien movies as a DVD set, all of the other directors, Ridley Scott, uh, James Cameron, and I forget who did the. Uh, the fourth movie, but they all were a part of it, did commentaries, interviews. He refused to show up. He wow. just didn't. He hates the movie. Absolutely hates it. That's so, crazy. 
Uh, but those are some great movies that he has gone on to. Hey, you, you asked to about if I had a favorite. Yes. I think I think knowing you, I think yours would be Fight Club. Am I right? I am very fond of Fight Club. I love that movie, but I'll tell you which one pops out to me on this list is 2014's right. Gone Girl. Right. I think that movie. I have not seen that one. Is so well done. I've always liked Panic Room, and I've always liked Benjamin Button. Those are movies that I've seen multiple times, and I've always really liked panic room panic room is wonderful um i'm a big fan of panic room uh i i like most of the movies on here mm-hmm. i've seen most of them and i like most of them social network is really good too but i haven't seen gone girl you need to watch gone girl that's a good one we should do that on a on a thursday if we do crime movies yes. in the future so seven opened on september 22nd 1995 and is a production of new line cinema if you have been listening to our show for some time you may remember that our episode on 1984 is A Nightmare on Elm Street. We mentioned that that was New Line's first original film. Up until that point, they were strictly a distributor. The success of the Elm Street movies led to them being dubbed the house that Freddy built. Seven represents their first A-list production. They wanted to attract the best talent and become a major studio. The gamble worked because six years later, after Seven was released, they would release the first of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, and in 2003, they would win the Oscar for Best Picture for the final film in that trilogy, The Return of the King. Seven was written over a period of two years by Andrew Kevin Walker while he was working at a Tower Records in New York City. So, Faith, what do you think of this story? And we're going to get into specifics with it as we get into the film, but what do you think of just the bare bones of this story? I absolutely love it. I like that there's so much more to it than just your detective movie solving a murder. You know, I feel like there's just so much more. Is it the heinous nature of the murders? Possibly. I, th- I really think it, it has much more to do with learning who these characters are, though. I feel like that's what I was so focused on. It wasn't just like, you know, here's a murder movie with these two cops. I feel like we really, right. you know, we really were focused on who these guys were. And it was a very important part of the movie. Right. And we're going to get into them mm-hmm. in, in detail. It, it's a genre movie that goes above the genre that it's in. We said that about Elm Street. We said that about a few films on here. You know, this is you know this is more than a horror movie. This is a movie you just absolutely have to see. The one I always say is Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. It's not just a science fiction movie. That's a meditation on life. This is one of these movies. It's not just a detective thriller or a right. horror film. This is something way more than that. Exactly. And, but the linchpin of the story, the the murders happening, you know, according to the Seven Deadly Sins, I think it's just absolutely a wonderful hook. Mm-hmm. You know, to get the audience in. The, the concept is is absolutely oh, yeah. great. So seven stars, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt as two homicide detectives in an unnamed city hunting down a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as a motif in his murders. Freeman stars as Detective Lieutenant William Somerset, a policeman with seven days to go until he retires from the force and Plit Pitt, Plit, and Pitt, Pitt plays. Try saying that five times really fast. <laughs> Pitt plays. Detective David Mills, and you transfer to the squad from out of town. Starring alongside them is Gwyneth Paltrow as Tracy Mills, Pitt's wife in the film. The late and very great Arlie Ermey as Freeman and Pitt's unnamed boss. John Shaft himself, Richard Roundtree as District Attorney Martin Talbot. And two-time Academy Award winner Kevin Spacey as John Doe, the man responsible for all of the killings. The film got very good reviews from both critics and audiences. It grossed $100 million against a $33 million budget. The film's domestic gross is $206 million when adjusted for inflation. So, Faith, I'd like to start with the first few minutes of the movie before the title sequence, and let's start with how the movie looks. Mm -hmm. 
What did you think of the color palette of this movie, and what effect did it have on you while you were watching it? Because it's it's different from other movies. Mm-hmm. I like um, that there wasn't too much color to it. It was just kind of dark but washed out at the same time, and I feel like that really set the tone for the movie. It absolutely does. So my note here is uh, the dark look was achieved through uh, bleach bypass. The silver in the film stock was not removed, and it deepens the dark, shadowy images. And Fincher has is on record as saying he wanted to make a color black and white film. And this ties into that film noir, the old 40s and 50s mystery films. And if you look at the blacks in this movie, the shadows, there's like blacks within blacks within blacks. Like they, they keep going into mm-hmm. this abyss. It's really really wonderful to look at especially in in high def and could you see this being an old detective movie from the 40s and 50s absolutely yeah i would also like to add to that the color timing that they use on this it almost gives the film a sick look Mm -hmm. it has a green kind of hue to everything it's kind of like washed out and kind of like you said uh, just it does look sick uncomfortable yeah it's it's an uncomfortable looking movie as pretty pretty as it is (laughs) yeah so we're also introduced to our two leads. First, we meet Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman. What's the, what's the vibe you get off of Somerset here? He seems very intelligent, very um, put together, very very thorough, but he also seems very detached. I mean, you get that instantly from him. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, there's a meticulous, methodical nature to him, and you see that with the uh, metronome. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got that thing going... We're going to talk more about the metronome, but you even see it like when he's getting dressed, he pulls a little bit of lint off of his suit jacket. Mm-hmm. He takes care, but there's a aloofness to him, mm-hmm. that it's, and it's not a cool aloofness like, oh, right. that guy's cool and laid back. No, he is laid back, but he's he's distant. Uh-huh. There's a distance to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, the metronome, we're going to talk about that. So. Somerset is named after screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker's favorite author, W. Somerset Mom. Mom is the author of The Razor's Edge and the semi-autobiographical 1915 novel Of Human Bondage, which is mentioned in the film. Of Human Bondage deals with the ideas of realism versus idealism. The short version of the plot is, a young idealistic man becomes an atheist. It asks the questions, who are we? Why are we here? deals with suffering and finding purpose in life. It also, and this is the most important part, deals with the conflict between passion and emotion versus practicality and logic. The character of Somerset represents practicality and logic, and I just dropped my notes, so let me grab those. You never believed that we edited that, did you? Would you, Faith? Nope. Yes, drop the notes. There they went, but I got them. So as I was saying, Somerset represents uh, practicality and logic, someone who is detached from their emotions, as both Faith and I just said. He's someone not well-liked because he's detached, and he asks questions no one else will ask. We see this in the first scene when he's investigating the murder-suicide and asks if the dead child witnessed his father kill his mother. We're going to come back to that as well at the end of the discussion when we dig into the theme of this. Andrew Kevin Walker is giving us a lot of information here in the first few minutes. The next big piece he gives us is a character of Detective David Mills, played by Brad Pitt. Mills has just transferred into the department and is eager to get started. In fact, there's a famous story about Bob Dylan and the Beatles. He had just heard either help or you've got to hide your love away and said something along the lines of, oh, you guys don't want to be cute anymore. So let me see if I can do that more in a Dylan voice. Eh, you guys don't want to be cute anymore. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Uh, Pitt was, at this time, the heartthrob in Hollywood, and this was a big departure for him. 
coming off of Legends of the Fall, he even stipulated that he would not take his shirt off. <laughs> uh, what do you think of Brad Pitt as a performer, and what's your general impression of Detective David Mills as we meet him in the film? I've definitely liked him for the most part um, as a performer. He's never one that I've, you know, jumped up and like, oh, I have to go see his movies as soon as they were released. But I definitely think he's great. And I think he's exceptionally great here. Um, my general impression of him was that he was the eager guy who seemed to have this um, invincible quality to him. And I think just the two of them being totally different, they were, it was necessary. You get it right in the beginning, too. Yeah. Pitt, uh, I never thought much of Brad Pitt when, I, when He's you know, never been my favorite. You know, 25 years ago when this movie came out. I've really come to appreciate older Pitt. I really like him as he's aged. Mm-hmm. I think he's, I think he's wonderful as he's, as he's aged. I think he's a, he seems like a good guy, yeah. but, uh, I think he's really good in this movie. And this Me was too. a turning point for him where we started taking him a little more seriously. And my note here is that the contrast between Somerset and Mills is extremely apparent right here. Uh, let's see. The difference in their approaches is what's going to drive the rest of the film and is going to highlight the theme of the movie. Now, I was looking for information on Mill's name because we have information on Somerset's name. and I couldn't find anything, but I think the case could be made that uh, it's representative of the windmills and Don Quixote. Uh, Don Quixote believes the windmills in that story to be dragons, and this uh, is the novel that gives us the term chaotic which means one who strives for visionary ideals. And I think the case could be made that David Mills strives for visionary ideals, which we see Mm -hmm. uh, later in the film. And that's the difference between these two characters. You know, one is detached and one's coming in, thinking he's going to fight the good fight. So we have one more character to talk about before we get into the titles and the theme of this piece. That is the unnamed city that these characters find themselves living and working in. It's never specified where it is, but it seems to always be raining anytime they venture outside. And we can even hear the rain on the sound design when they're indoors. What did you think of the constant rain in the picture? I think it was totally fitting. I think it added heaviness to an already, you know, heavy, heaviness was already hanging around, but I think it kind of added a little more to it. I think it made things more drearier and bleak. And it helps, it helps with the tone and yeah, the setting for sure. Absolutely. So, and I do think that the city is the real antagonist. Oh, yeah. Uh, Somerset even says at one point it does things to you, and he's had enough of it and is retiring and getting out. And then we have Mills coming in, bright eyed and bushy tailed, ready to do some good and fight the good fight. And so here we have it, Faith. Here's the big theme of the movie apathy. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And we're going to see it reflected in the character of John Doe, played by Kevin Spacey. And we're really going to see it in a later conversation between Mills and Somerset when they talk about his retirement in fighting that good fight that we just mentioned. But the apathy is the real horror of this picture, and great horror reflects the world back to us. For me, it's the disconnect from society. We're going to see it in John Doe's journals later, and then in his actions, as he says he wants to wake people up. So I have two questions. Are we living in an apathetic, disconnected age? And when Somerset asked if the kid saw his father kill his mother, was he asking out of a place of genuinely wanting to know that, or was he hoping the answer would prove his point about getting out and retiring? Um, for your first question, I, I do think we live in a, in a detached society. You agree? It's amazing. We are so connected in so many ways with uh, technology mm-hmm. devices and social media. And I think that there is an absolute disconnect. And I think people are disconnected from themselves most of the time. And I, I find so. that you've... The two places that you find the most passionate, at least in, in my eyes, 
to my eyes is you find it in sports and you find it in the political arena and mm-hmm. you know the political arena i feel like there's so on both sides you know just so much just you know that's what drives your life you know yeah. and you could say the same thing about sports now this is coming from two sports fans you know but people who just let things drive them you know let's you know they live their life through other things and not through experiences and relationships and people. So yeah, I, I definitely think, and having a, and talking to people online is not a relationship. Nope. That is not, that is not getting out and being out in the world. Now this is from someone who does not like going out, but uh, I am very introverted and socially shy, I guess you could say. But I mean, I, I do have friendships and I see people and talk to people and, and things like that. And I have colleagues but yeah, I feel like we're definitely disconnected. And I, I think, think so. the more that we start letting things live our lives for us, like, oh, we hate Trump or, you know, or, or you know, uh, different things. You know, when you let starting other living rent-free in your head, it's not a good place. No, not at all. And I think it drives people to this place of yeah. apathy. I, I, I know I've gotten to the point where I don't care sometimes <laughs> with things. I'm right there with I you. I just don't care. I just... <laughs> You know, it, it it does something. It really does something to you if you live, you know, it's, what's that Bible quote, you know, be in the world, but not of it, you know, and I think too many people are being of it. And that's not a religious thing I'm throwing out there. It's just, it is what it is. No, I agree. You, you I agree know? 100%. And your next question, I think I definitely see it wanting to be a point that he wants to prove. I don't know. Do you agree with that? When I rewatched the first couple of minutes, and it's so efficient, I just want to say how much I admire that as a writer, what he did there, giving us all that information that's going to carry us through the rest of the movie. But when he asked it, and I was watching it, and I had not seen this movie. It had been a good while since I'd seen this movie, and I was watching it, and he asked that question. I went, he's just that meticulous, and he cares that much. I think he's backing up his theory that mm-hmm. he's like, oh, the kid saw that, and well, I'm out. Yeah, yeah like that, I mean, that's- Morgan Freeman for the night. <laughs> Well, I'm out. <laughs> that's that's where that's where I was going with that. You know, I don't know. It could be both. Who knows? Because you know, Pitt calls it later. You know, he wants to believe that, mm-hmm. and I think he's looking for evidence to back that up. So, well, that brings us to the famous title sequence, and you can still see the effect of this title sequence on a show like American Horror Story. And that title sequence, for especially that first season, reminds me a mm-hmm. lot of the thing here. It uses a version of Nine Inch Nails Closer, and Fincher has used Trent Reznor quite a bit throughout his films as a composer, and even though he didn't score this movie, he's even here in this Mm -hmm. one. So what did you think of the title as a piece by itself and as a mood setter for what we're about to see? Um, I think it was one of my favorite parts of the whole entire movie. I usually fast forward uh, through stuff like that. Right. So it kind of shows you how, I mean, I I watched it multiple times, and I was like, wow, it was so fitting. I feel like it shows you exactly what the tone is and the song choice was, I think, good. I liked it. The disconnect, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole vibe of it, the colors, the, you know, they actually was, scratched the film in some yeah, places. Yeah, just that distressed look, that dark, distressed. Disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. I remember seeing this movie for the first time and going, wow, because I mean, we had never seen anything like that right. 25 years ago when this came out and it still works too. And mm-hmm. I want to ask this because I meant to ask this earlier. This movie came out 24, so it's almost 25 years old now. This came out in the mid-90s. Does it feel like a mid-90s movie? And does it look like a movie from that time? No. 
It doesn't feel or really look like one at all. Doesn't it feel like a movie that came out last week? Uh-huh. It's it's amazing the look of this. I even film. thought that when I was watching, I was like, this doesn't seem like it's that old. It seems very fresh. Right. I think it's great um, as a mood set, yeah, you know, as a mood mm-hmm. setter, and just as a title sequence unto yeah. itself. So, well, you know why we're here. Mm-hmm. You want to get into it? You want to yes. get into the murders? Let's do it. So a lot of people say this is an absolutely violent and reprehensible movie, yet no violence as it relates to the murders is depicted on screen. We don't even see the aftermath of the most heinous murder, the killing of Tracy, Gwyneth Paltrow's character by John Doe, and we're just told about it, and it's implied. What do you think about the choice to not show the murders, only the aftermath of the violence, and what do you think of the decision to keep John Doe out of the picture until 90 minutes in? I am okay with this decision. I think it leaves a lot of room um, for the imagination and just how brutal, um, you know, it could have been for these people. And I think it gives a lot of room for even the crime scenes, scenes, scenes to be more brutal. I can't talk. And I think maybe it would have dragged on if it would have showed every single, you know, crime, yeah. crime scene in, in the whole entire you know, right. Feel of it. I, I like it from the imagination standpoint. You having to fill in those those blanks mm-hmm. with your mind, which is awful. But it also puts you more into the uh, minds of Somerset and Mills in their investigation. Right. And the movie is really about their relationship. So, and also the audience is getting the information as they're getting it, and that also enhances the mystery elements even right. more for me. And so the other thing too is we have no clue who this guy is. And I think keeping him out of the picture for 90 minutes even gives him more power oh, as yeah. a character I'm when he comes in. Yeah. Because they don't get him. Right. He, he walks in by himself. And I've said before, this movie led to um, a trope you see in a lot of movies where the villain will get caught on purpose. You right. know, And that's not what's at work here. He's not getting caught on purpose to escape. He's getting caught on purpose for a very specific reason you see that in the dark night with the joker and you mm-hmm. see it in skyfall and and a couple other movies that are escaping me <laughs> so kevin spacey appears here as john doe he's uncredited in the beginning of the film because spacey didn't want people looking for him throughout the movie and also he didn't want to have to do press for the film <laughs> pretty smart now here's a guy who's been in the news a lot lately with allegations of sexual misconduct we're not going to talk about that here we're only going to talk about and look at his performance in this movie. So what did you think of Kevin Spacey here? And could you have seen anyone else doing this? I think he's so creepy. And aside from, you know, any allegations, he's always creeped me out for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know what it is about him. <laughs> but he's always creeped me out. And I really don't think I could have seen anybody else. The best description I've ever gotten of Kevin Spacey uh, was from a friend of mine who said he's like Jack Lemon, but he's mean. He's like a really mean-spirited Jack Lemon, uh, which I think is a perfect description of him. Yeah. No, I think he's absolutely perfect here. Uh, I think his look is correct for this guy. Val Kilmer was a guy they talked about using. I could see him doing it. I don't know if it would have that iconic thing. He doesn't creep me out as much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I don't think I really could see it too much. So right Yeah. There. And Spacey, though, is just so just from the minute you see him, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's creep. Creep Central. He reminds me of somebody, but I can't. I couldn't place who he reminded me of. Another villain. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas? No, you can see the Joker from The Dark Knight in there a little bit. The Heath Ledger yeah. character. There's just somebody else that yeah. was like, "Wow, that reminds." I just I this was place one of it. a kind. Yeah, this was one of a kind yeah. when it came out. So as dark as all of this is, there is a little light in the movie in the form of Tracy Mills, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Now. We have traditionally not been huge fans of Paltrow, although we both appreciate her as Pepper Potts in the Marvel movies. And 
This was 1995. She was really getting established as an actress. So when we saw her in this 25 years ago, there wasn't the baggage that went with her. And yes, I'm talking about goop and some of the hilarious quotes that have come out of her mouth. Do you have any favorites of those, Faith? No. (laughs) I love them all. I think they're amazing. I think she's amazing. (laughs) But uh, what do you think, all kidding aside, what do you think of her in the movie and the character of Tracy Mills? She definitely didn't bother me in this movie because I usually, you know, like you said, only Pepper Potts is who. <laughs> but uh, no, I thought, right. I thought she had this uh, nice, sweet quality to her. I liked her. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I think she's wonderful here. And you don't have that baggage with her at this time, too, uh-uh. with the with the tabloids. And we're past that now with her, too. So, I mean, it's okay to, you know. But she was everywhere, you know. And it was, which just kind of pissed you off, too, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> it was after this movie. But. No, she's great here, and she does bring sunshine and, and intelligence right. and warmth, like she does in as Pepper Potts. Exactly. You know? So one of my favorite scenes is a library scene where Somerset starts doing research on the seven deadly sins, and I like it for a lot of reasons. I love the choice of the Bach music. I think it really sets the mood of the scene and is perfect for Somerset. I also love what he's doing here, researching a case he's not working on for a guy he doesn't like very much. <laughs> And I think it says a lot about Somerset and that he's not completely apathetic yet. The other thing happening here is we're seeing how patient and intelligent he is. So what are your thoughts on the library scene? And what do you think of the parallels drawn between Somerset and John Doe? Do you think they're of equal intelligence? Uh, I love the library scene. I think it shows, you know, right there who these two guys are. I don't know. They're... When we see John Doe's journals, there's all the aspirin around because it gives him a headache uh-huh. and that thing starts pouring out of him. And, you know, and the thing is like, oh, the metronome with Morgan Freeman's mm-hmm. Somerset character, you know, oh, he, he's uh, methodical. He's shutting the world out, too, like John right. Doe. And to me, that's the parallel between those two characters and how methodical he is with this research and exactly. careful and, and, and um, intelligent and intuitive he is. And I love that Bach piece playing oh, over that. Too. And I love the contrast between him doing the library research and Mills having to get the Cliff's Notes versions of the Seven Deadly Sins and Dante and all that. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful scene, and I love the music for Freeman. And I associate that piece of music, which is Bach's orchestral suite, um, number four in D major. It's either three or four in D major. Uh, movement to the air movement. I associate that with this film. That's when I hear that. I think of Morgan Freeman sitting in that library in seven. I do now, now that I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> it's gorgeous. So it's a gorgeous piece of music. It's a gorgeous scene. I love it the is. set design there too because they built that. I actually watched that scene several times. I loved it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So here's a silly question. Do you have a favorite of the seven deadly sins? Ooh, gluttony. I love or them all. Lust, all of them. I love them all. They're all fun. <laughs> I know. I read that question. I was like, all of them. <laughs> They're all they're all very fun, you know. They are. Why can't why can't we indulge in all of those? <laughs> yeah. So the ending of the film is the ending that Andrew Kevin Walker originally wrote. The studio wanted a different ending, and he even wrote several drafts of the ending to make them happy. The script that was sent to David Fincher was the wrong draft. In quotes, he got the script with the head in the box ending, and that's why he signed on to do the film. Brad Pitt took Fincher's side with the head in the box ending and that's the film he said that's what the film needed so what do you think of this ending because it was pretty shocking when we saw it first 25 years ago it's still shocking and considered to be one of the greatest endings in film history where are you on this i didn't expect it at all (laughs) so you had no idea that this was coming no idea I, i totally unexpected and i think it works i'm glad it was there 
What did you think of the decision? We did talk about this a little with not showing the violence, but you don't see the head. You get the subliminal cut of her. Im- that Did you see the little image mm-hmm. of her? It's twice in the movie you see her head. You see her face. And so you get that little bit of a cut, and you see his reaction to it. Right. Freeman's reaction to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's chilling. It's it's. I knew it was coming, and it was terrifying when I, I saw it. Know. Chilling. Just, just it is. how methodical that guy was with that. <laughs> no, I think... I'm okay with them not showing, again, with the violence and all that. I'm okay with it. I think it really ties into the whole mystery element of this movie. I mean, I think it's, yeah. good, you know. I think it's one of the great endings in film history. It, it and is. you just don't see it coming. And that's because you stay away from the killer's point of view. You're not mm-hmm. with him. It's great. Mm-hmm. And it's chilling when he walks into that police station. You realize that the blood is, is, is on his shirt is hers. Yep. Brilliant. It's absolutely it's chilling incredible. and brilliant. So... Let's see. Final question. Well, let me ask one other question. What did you think of the Gwyneth Paltrow-Morgan Freeman relationship in this film? Because I really like it. I did, too. I like it. It was something, I guess, again, I wasn't expecting to see, you know, or for that to be there. And I actually really like that scene as well. Yeah. I noticed, too, that she has on at the dinner party scene. She's listening to jazz. She's Mm -hmm. listening to... uh, Straight No Chaser by the great Thelonious Monk. And then later, he listens to Charlie Parker. So they both listen to jazz. I think there's a little bit of music linkage between them, you know. So I think they were really great together. Me too. So final question. A lot of people were considered for seven. Denzel Washington for Mills. Sylvester Stallone for Mills. Val Kilmer, as we said, for John Doe. Nicholas Cage for Mills and Harrison Ford for Somerset. Could you have seen anyone else in this movie? And are there any combinations you think would have been especially interesting? Oh, that's, I don't know if I really could have pictured anybody else in it. I could see Ford as Somerset, possibly. I was going to say, that's, that's where I was going to go with it. His but, energy would work for Somerset, mm-hmm. but it would depend on who he was paired with, I think, right. as to how he comes off. Yeah, that's a that's a tough question with any combinations. I don't know if I could have. Denzel and Sly were the first choices for Mills, and they both say they regret turning it down. Hmm. I could see both of them playing Mills. You know, would it be the energy that we have in this picture? I have no idea. Right. I don't know. I like what we have here with yeah. this cast. I I but I would like to see the Nicolas Cage Harrison Ford pairing because of the different energies that they have. I think that would be. That would have been an alternate universe movie. I would have liked to have seen just to see what yeah, they I mean, what they did with it because they're so different as right. guys and actors, you know. And I know they would have worked well together because they're pros. But yeah. that's the one. You know, and what Stallone would have done with that character too would have been that's interesting. I, I, I don't know if I can picture that. And he was second on the list after Denzel, and he turned it down. I can see Denzel. Yeah, see absolutely. Denzel. He said one of the biggest regrets of his career. Al Pacino was on the list for Somerset. So hmm. yeah, there was there were some guys on the. On the list, so I, I like what we have here. I this do is too. this I is do. the right combination. And what did you think of the Pitt Freeman relationship? Their energy's unique. It is. It's not like a buddy cop movie. You know, they don't like each other for most most of the movie. They come to respect each other, I think, at the end. But yeah. it almost feels like Morgan Freeman is babysitting him throughout. That's ex- the I was movie. literally just about to say that because he is a big man child. Yeah. I was just about to say that. I feel like he's kind of his guardian through this movie. You know? Absolutely, because at the beginning he did not want him even working the case. Uh-uh. You know, no, it, I, it's interesting. They're, yeah, but they're they're very interesting together because when you told me about this movie, I don't know if I could have ever pictured them in a movie together. I don't know, but it works. It totally works. It works. I'm it okay totally, with this it. is a great movie, it and is. I'm glad this got Fincher going because yeah. he's he's wonderful. So, let's talk about favorite moments or, or scenes or anything from this movie that you really really like that you want um, that you want to mention. 
I like, we already kind of mentioned some where John Doe shows up covered in blood, station, the classical music. I like the scene with the, um, when the police go in, they find the body in the bed. Yeah. They didn't tell those guys that that guy was going to be alive. So the reaction when he comes to is genuine. Yeah. Oh, I, I like it even more now. Yeah. I did not know that. Totally cool, right? Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite scenes. What about you? Um, I like most of this movie. It's hard to pick moments, but uh, <laughs> I I will say this though: I like the fact that the guy uh, Gluttony, who is naked on the table, mm-hmm. and that was a guy in a fat suit, that they gave him a uh, really big package because <laughs> the rest of him was so big, and the guy had to go through such pain sitting there in the suit, and he was like, "Well, we're going to make your dick really big." <laughs> yeah, I just like that. I think that's really funny. I like the library scene. I think that's just a, a yeah, beautiful moment. I also like how they call Freeman's character Smiley, the security mm-hmm. guards, and they seem to know him because he goes there at night, so mm-hmm. he can't sleep. You know, yeah. um, what do you think about what the movie says though? That conversation between them about apathy. Do you think we can fight the good fight and win, or do you think we need to check out? I think possibly we could fight the good fight. I mean, if you try hard I, enough, I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. I don't know. At this point in my life, I am both, we can fight the good fight and I'm apathetic. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. It's, no, I, I, it's so much to overcome. I feel that way too, but. Some days I feel like I want to be Luke Skywalker and go live on the island at the end of The I Force Awakens. I feel that Awakens. way almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's a great movie. Check it out if you have not seen it in a while. And um, if you've never seen it, please watch this. Faith can attest to the fact of how good this yeah, is and you, how modern it feels, yeah. right? You had texted me too that this might become one of my favorite movies. And you're right. I mean. This is a really, really, really good movie. Well, there are elements to a Nicolas Cage movie, as they established on Saturday Night Live, and that is um, everything is on fire and the dialogue is either whispered or screamed. And the elements for a a faith favorite movie are here with the crime element, the mystery, and and then the uh, blood. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that's high praise, as they would say in Nicolas Cage world. (laughs) Well, Faith, I'm glad you enjoyed this. This was a, a good pick, I think. Very good pick. I think it was a good pick. And uh, do you have anything else you would like to add about Seven? I think that's it. Do you have anything else? It's awesome. It is. It's awesome. <laughs> and I, I'm still trying to figure out what my favorite Deadly Sin is. I'm still going to go with all of them. <laughs> you can't well, just pick one. I can't just pick. Oh, well, um, well in that case, Gluttony. That's, that's where I, I kind of am. Gluttony, too. yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's fun to eat sometimes, isn't right? it? yeah. Unless it's spaghetti and it expands your stomach like it does in this movie. Right. That was pretty gross. <laughs> So, um, as we said, this is a kind of shortened episode. We, uh, we've had a long week, and uh, we just wanted to really talk about this movie and focus on it. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope we uh, have encouraged you to watch the movie again and see it in a different light, as we do here on the Late Night Fright. We will be back with more tomfoolery and some great movies coming up in October. Stay tuned for what we have. As always, uh, we have Cage Match Monday, and we have TV Tuesday, and all of those episodes are available wherever podcasts can be found. So... Well, Faith, there's the music. There it is. It's time to go. Yes, it is. Thank you for spending a little time with us. We know you have a lot of options when it comes to your time. Thanks for spending time with us here on our little show. All of our episodes are available wherever podcasts can be found. Faith, let's say goodnight. You ready? Yes. May your coffin be cozy and your sarcophagus warm. May the light of the moon keep you safe from harm. Be you vampire, spook, specter, or beast. Always remember, keep keep your your monster monster on on a leash. leash. We'll see you on the other side. This is a coyote for the late night fright. We hope you enjoyed hearing Dan and Faith talk about Seven. And if that movie teaches us anything, it's that the world can be a cruel, dark, and mean place. 
real mean. We hope that you got some good vibes listening to this show, and we hope that you carry them good vibes with you as you go out into the world. And remember, when you get out in that cold, dark, cruel world and you can't find those positive vibes, just look deep inside your heart because they're right there waiting for you. You have a good night. Dan. And I am Faith. And we want to let you know that we are on the World Wide Web. That's the interwebs, isn't it, Faith? That's what I like to call it, the interweb. www.latenightfright.com. And we are also on the gram. We are. You can check us out at the Late Night Fright Podcast. Or you can also follow my personal page, I'm a Normal Alien. You're not exactly normal, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Check out the website. You can subscribe to our mailing list. And if you like the show, please give us a review and subscribe and all that good stuff. You know us. We're available wherever podcasts can be found. You got that right. We'll see you on the other side.